COVID-19 related hospitalizations in the U.S. are up over 40% and there's a new sub-variant. On average, 54 Americans are still dying each day from COVID. A former top advisor to President Biden says, with some simple steps, none of this should be a concern to most of us. Keeping up, getting your annual COVID shot. If you're a high risk person, it may mean two shots. Um, but basically making sure you're up to date on your vaccines, single most important thing. One of the things that we have found consistently in the last year and a half is if you're up to date on your vaccines, your chances of ending up in the hospital or dying are dramatically low. Our guest today is Dr. Ashish Jha, the former White House COVID-19 coordinator, now back in his role as the Dean of the Brown University School of Public Health. I think everybody over the age of 50 and maybe even people under 50, though it's not uh, authorized for that, but everybody over the age of 50, if you get COVID, you should get uh, assessed for treatment. And my view is most people should be getting treated. And this is Conversations on Healthcare. Dr. Jha, welcome back to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you for having me back. I'm excited to be back. Yeah, and you know, it's your fifth time on our program, and we always learn a lot from your insights. Uh, you recently wrote in the Boston Globe that most of us can finally ignore COVID. I'm wondering if you could go over for our listeners uh, the basic steps that can help all of us indeed ignore COVID. Yeah, and I, you know, I think the purpose of that was to say, that, you know, I often get asked, you know, do we have to learn to live with COVID? And I say, look, we've been living with COVID for three and a half years. Um, the question in my mind isn't, do we have to live with COVID or not? The question is, how do you live with COVID safe? How do you live with COVID while continuing to do the things that are important to you? And number one on that list is keeping up with your immunity. Uh, look, the bottom line is the reason COVID has been, was a problem, a massive problem in 2020 was because none of us had immunity to the virus. Keeping up getting your annual COVID shot. If you're a high risk person, it may mean two shots. Um, but basically making sure you're up to date on your vaccines, single most important thing. One of the things that we have found consistently in the last year and a half is if you're up to date on your vaccines, your chances of ending up in the hospital or dying are dramatically low. The second thing, which we didn't have available two years ago, but we do now, is really effective treatments. And I believe we should be using more of these, not less. Uh, Paxlovid, everybody, of course, knows about. There's uh, IV remdesivir. There are other options uh, coming down the pike. But right now, uh, I think everybody over the age of 50, and maybe even people under 50, though it's not uh, authorized for that, but everybody over the age of 50, if you get COVID, you should get uh, assessed for treatment. And my view is most people should be getting treated. If people do those two things, keep up on the immunity, get treated when you get infected, COVID need not be a substantial disruption, and there's no reason to think it's going to land you in the hospital uh, or worse. Um, obviously, there are other important things, Mark, that people can do in highest risk situations, especially when cases are up. Wearing a high quality mask can reduce your risk of infection. I think more systemically, we've got to continue plugging away at improving indoor air quality. Okay. I'll have you talk more about that. So it, it is not that there are not other things to be done. But making sure you're up on your immunity, making sure you're getting treated, to me, those are the cornerstones of ensuring that COVID does not become a major. Well, Dr. Ja, all uh, good and valuable advice. I'd like to just highlight uh, one element of it. Uh, you spoke about the importance of treatment and that treatments like Paxlovid are remarkable at preventing serious illness and their safety uh, is proven. I think you've done a lot to help increase its use. But I, I 
noted a study that found patients with COVID-19 who were Black were 36% less likely than white patients to be treated with Paxlovid, patients who were Hispanic 30% less likely than non-Hispanic patients to receive it. Uh, what do we do to ensure that people get the treatment they need regardless of race or ethnicity? Yeah, this is a fantastic question, Margaret. Let me, let me tell you how we thought about this uh, when I was at the White House and how I think about it now. Um, look, in 2022, that study that you mentioned, I, th I think is a CDC study right. or published in the MMWR, uh, looked at the first half of 2022. Uh, in that time period, we did a lot of work to dramatically increase access to uh, Paxlovid. And one of the things we found out, and not surprising, is that when we when it started increasing, initially many of the, much of that increase was happening in communities, in more privileged communities, in wider communities, in wealthier communities. and that data became obvious, uh, apparent to us. And even before this study came out, we said, we have a problem here we've got to address. And so we we actually put in a lot of policy efforts uh, to try to improve access to these uh, to these therapies. So right now, 98% of counties, communities have a place where these treatments are available. But it's not just about availability. Um, one of the things we realized, there were a lot of Americans who didn't have a primary care physician. African-Americans, Latinos, more likely to not have. So we really substantially built out our test to treat programs where if you get if you test at home and you're positive you don't need to go see a primary care doctor there are other mechanisms we uh, work with fda to expand pharmacist prescribing because we know in a lot of communities of color it's the pharmacist who often functions as a primary care so there was a lot of work done before um, after the study came out uh, to try to expand access final point on this uh, it, we have a long history of disparities in healthcare in our country across mm -hmm. every single topic. Um, so it is not surprising to see that pop up here. The job is not to write it off and say, well, we always have disparities. We can't do anything. It's to use data like this to drive action, to close that gap and make sure that everybody's getting access to treatments. Uh, Dr. Joff, I can, uh, before uh, we move on, uh, I think we'll talk in a little bit about what happens after the vaccines are not as available. Uh, a big piece of Paxlovid, at least in community health centers, was the drugs were delivered to us. They could be dispensed at the point of care. Uh, thoughts about how that might be continued in the future? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, look, one of the things that made this much easier was that the U.S. government had bought the Paxlovid and we could send it directly to community health centers. I actually did a whole series of phone calls with HRSA and community health centers. Uh, to make sure that these drugs were available. By the way, at the ending of the public health emergency doesn't make that go away. There's still a national stockpile of medicines. Uh, and the, I know that HHS is negotiating with the companies to figure out how do we make sure that certainly in communities of color, underserved communities, uh, that we are able to continue doing that. Well, I know one thing you're very proud of is uh, the stocking of the national uh, uh uh, stockpile, uh, which is very important. But I want to get back to that op-ed that appeared because there were quite a few letters, and you probably saw them to the editor. Did. Uh, writers did. pushed back on what they thought was a <laughs> yes. rosy outlook. One wrote that by downplaying the prevalence and debilitating outcomes of even moderate long COVID, that you are signing thousands of people up for misery and despair uh, with uh, which that individual lives with every day. Um, so let me be uh, crisp and clear on this. And by the way, I talk about long COVID in the piece. I think some people might have just missed that, but um, long COVID is a real problem. And what we know is that a small percentage of people uh, who get COVID end up 
really significantly impacted that goes well beyond that acute illness. They end up weeks or months later, and a small number of people, even years later, are very, very profoundly affected by this. Now, what I say is a few things. First, we've seen this with other viruses, too. This is not a phenomenon only of COVID. We've seen this with influenza. We've seen this uh, with other infections. It probably happens a bit more with COVID. And I say probably because we don't know for sure, uh, but it may be more of a problem. The second thing is there is absolutely clear data that if you have been up to date on your vaccines, the risk of that significant long-term debilitating long COVID gets cut substantially, 50, 60%, maybe more. So there is a there is no doubt about it that vaccines help prevent. And by the way, if you think about how long COVID happens and how it works, it makes all the sense in the world that immunologic training through vaccines is going to reduce that. And obviously, the people who've been living with it for several years, a lot of them got infected before uh, their vaccines were available. Um, but no doubt, keeping up to date. There is a little bit of evidence that getting treated also reduces your risk of long COVID by about forty percent. There's one study on that topic. We need more data. So my point in all that, Mark, is there are things people can do to reduce their risk. Now, what about the people who already have it? That's a group that needs treatment and it needs support. One of the things we worked on quite substantially when I was inside the administration was laying out a whole federal plan for how we were going to support people with long COVID, how they were going to get, uh, how we make sure that they get access to disability care, that disability insurance to the or or. or um, payments where that's appropriate, uh, that CMS is doing everything it can to create medical codes so physicians can code for it. It's just there's a lot of work to be done here. And then last but not least is a recover study from NIH uh, that is literally spending billions of dollars to try to both better understand long COVID and treat it. Is that all enough? No. I think we got to continue doing more. I'm very supportive of more work in this area. I just think we have to be thoughtful on this. Last point, um, there are a lot of people who are who I think want to call any time anybody has any persistent symptoms a few weeks later as long COVID. We've got to define this thing carefully because it does no service to people who are really suffering to lump everybody in. We've got to focus on the people who are really suffering substantially and figure out how to support them and help. Well, summer is uh, wrapping up. Falls right around the corner. That means flu season is here. Flu vaccine season is here. And maybe the number one question uh, we're hearing is, should we be waiting uh, to get the COVID vaccine? Is there a new version that's going to be out that will be more effective? Uh, what's the uh, what's the process and uh, the knowledge on where things stand right now in terms of what people should do this fall in yeah. terms of getting the vaccine? That's yeah, a great question. Um, first of all, the advice is a little different if you're over 60 versus under 60. Remember, there are three viruses now, respiratory viruses that we deal with that during the winter kill a lot of people, uh, COVID, flu, RSV. Right. For people over 60, we have a highly effective RSV vaccine, first time ever. We're going to have a flu vaccine, as we always do, and we are going to have a new COVID vaccine. Look, I always want to be data-driven on these things. My full expectation is that the new vaccine from COVID on COVID XBB15 vaccine uh, will provide a substantially greater degree of protection than what's out there already in terms of vaccines. Let's see what the data shows. We will see some data in the upcoming weeks. It'll certainly drive how uh, FDA makes these decisions. Let's see what FDA says. Let's see what CDC says. And, uh, and recommendations should follow the data. So my view is most likely, I think about my elderly parents. They're in their 80s. Most likely they're going to get a flu vaccine, a COVID vaccine, and an RSV vaccine. They're probably going to get them all together on the same day. 
They're not going to be very happy. They're going to be a little miserable for 24 hours, but it's going to provide a very high degree of protection for them throughout the holidays uh, and the winter season. And for people under 60 like me, uh, assuming that the, we, the data on COVID uh, vaccines bears out as I expect to, I'll probably get a COVID vaccine and a flu vaccine. It'll be good for me, good for my family, prevents and slows spread as well. So it's good for everybody else around me. That's going to be the recommendation. Two shots if you're under 60, three if you're over. But let's see what the data, where the data land, and then really make a decision based on that. You know, and thanks for uh, that shout out on RSV vaccine as well, which people haven't been hearing as much about that one. You know, I'm wondering, as you sort of think past uh, your service in the White House, there are enormous amount of large crisis that uh, the country's facing, certainly the behavioral health crisis, opioid, uh, you know, we've got environmental issues to deal with. Life expectancy has been shortened. Uh, yeah. How are you putting, conceptually putting all that together as you think about back in your role now of framing up some responses and uh, what, what are you seeing out there uh, that gives you some encouragement that these things are being addressed? Yeah. Well, a couple of things. So, I mean, first is there are very substantial challenges facing human health, both here in the United States and around the world. Obviously, viruses, pandemics are, uh, are near the top of that list. But there are other important things that are also near the top of the list that have gotten much less attention. Uh, you mentioned this, Mark, but I think it's worth emphasizing. I think climate change poses one of the most substantial mm -hmm. health challenges in our country and around the world, from heat waves to changes in disease vectors, uh, to displacement, uh, to so many other things. Climate change is going to end up having a very large effect on clinical practice, as well as on public health. That needs to be understood better, and we need to start working on mitigation, because this is not a problem that's 30 years away. It is a problem that is now, and we are just not recognizing it as, as that. So we've got to do that. Um, the drop in life expectancy in the United States is unprecedented. It is, we have never seen this kind of a drop in life expectancy, certainly not in the last 100 years, outside of during World War II. Um, and whereas other high-income countries are starting to turn around, we have not seen that turn around in the United States. I think it is for the reasons you have highlighted. Uh, deaths from fentanyl continue to be shocking and growing. Uh, obviously, we've got mental health uh, challenges. I, I am hopeful uh, that the energy of, of responding to COVID can uh, be directed towards these other problems as well. While we continue to deal with respiratory diseases, um, we can really bolster public health responses it's going to be hard and people are tired and the public health community is exhausted after three and a half years. So they're really going to need an infusion of energy resources if we're going to turn these things around. And, and just sort of going back to COVID 2020 and the environmental crisis that we face to, uh, today, they're both global problems, right? And they require they are... concerted action across that. We're was there anything built in in terms of the long-term COVID response that gives you some hope that uh, the public health community can be aligned uh, uh, in terms of its response there? Because it's going to require uh, a global action. Absolutely. You're, it's a great point. Um, look, I often say, you know, global pandemics require global solutions. Solutions have to be simultaneously global and local, meaning they have to be contextualized for local context. It's not the same. It's not the same solution in Providence as it is, you know, in rural India. I think we understand that. But at the same time, it's that coordination that's very important. I actually am hopeful on this one, Mark. You know, there's so much that 
even in the time that I was at the White House, about 15 months, but before then, um, there was so much work done to make sure we're coordinating with our friends in Europe, that we're coordinating with our friends in the uh, in the in in Asia uh, and elsewhere, and that that practice of of coordinating, of talking to each other, of sharing knowledge, sharing data, I think is going to translate into how we deal with the, with these other global challenges. So, I am hopeful that one of the silver linings out of a very tough pandemic will be that we're going to do a much better job uh, coordinating globally and understanding that you can't solve these problems in one country at a time, especially when the challenges are truly global. Well, I'm all about silver linings. I like them a lot. And <laughs> one of the uh, silver linings, it seemed to me, uh, was the uh, greater use and recognition of existing capacity to deliver essential health services, regardless of your ability to pay, uh, sending people to their uh, local pharmacy, independent or chain pharmacy on the corner for a COVID test and then for a vaccine certainly was one of them expanding a program. I bet you 80 percent of parents who bring their kids to the pediatrician don't know that that vaccine is coming under the vaccine uh, for children's program, if it's for one of the standard illnesses. And I'm really curious, as a public health expert, a scientist uh, and a physician, have you uh, have you tried to use your bully pulpit there to maybe expand those programs so that these things are just a given part of infrastructure uh, in the United States, regardless of your insurance status? Yeah, it's a great question, Margaret. I, I, I actually want to answer this question in sort of two or three ways, and you'll see how I, it connects to the question you're asking. Um, I often get asked, you know, and I got asked throughout the whole pandemic, you know, how do we go back to 2019? What do we need to do? And I always said, like, we're not going back to 2019. I don't want to go back to 2019. Right. 2019 had plenty of problems. I want to go to a brighter 2023 and a brighter 2020. And that means looking at what worked well in the pandemic and making sure that we don't dismantle them when the emergency ends but that we actually build on those. That's one thought. And then I'll connect these dots. The second thought is I have said for a decade, if not longer, that pharmacists are among the most underutilized healthcare providers. We They are everywhere. They are trusted. They have a lot of knowledge. Like every healthcare provider, they have their limits, of course, but they are incredibly knowledgeable, incredibly expert. And we do not use them well enough in our Okay, start combining some of these ideas and you see, you know, what we did in this pandemic was we leaned heavily on pharmacies. We leaned heavily on pharmacists. We also leaned heavily on doctors and nurses to do innovative things. And as we were unwinding the emergency, one of the constant questions we asked ourselves, uh, we asked the healthcare providers, was which of these things do we want to keep? Telemedicine, really important. Test to treat programs relying on pharmacies for vaccinations and treatments, especially for people who are uninsured and can't get access because they don't have a regular primary care physician. A lot of that will stay. And my hope is we will build and expand on those things. Because again, the goal is not to go backwards. The goal is to look forward to a future that's much better than where we were before this pandemic. You know, I want to try to connect two, two questions together. One is there's this debate and mystery about how COVID started. The House Select Subcommittee on Coronavirus Pandemic has published a report that uh, discusses what it calls the suppression of lab leak hypothesis. And you're quoted as saying it started when a bat probably infected a human sometime in late 2019 in around Wuhan. 
Others say uh, it may never be known because the data is missing. And then sort of, you know, we recently had Dr. Califan uh, uh, from the FDA, who's really talking about, he th sort of thought the, the biggest challenge right now is the misinformation uh, uh, is in healthcare is its biggest threat. You know, those sort of seem to be connected because, you know, there's, we haven't found terra firma <laughs> from which we can build up in terms of our trust with each other. And it seems to be that if we're going to solve problems in healthcare, we have to have some trust. Uh, and it, it, it seems to be elusive. So, you know, broad set of, of questions, but what are your, what's your contemplation on it? Yeah, it's, a, it's actually a very good set of questions. Um, let me start by talking a little bit about um, origins, COVID origins. You know, I think early in 2020, my view was that it, it was more likely than not a natural origin, because that's where most new infections start, a spillover from animal to um, But my degree of confidence then and my degree of confidence now is really low, meaning I don't know. I don't know. And even when I was at the White House, and we spent a lot of time thinking about this and looking at a lot of data, the short answer, Mark, is I do not know whether this was uh, natural or whether this was lively. Um, what I know is that it is important that we get to the bottom. I still believe, and maybe I'm one of the few people out there who does, I still believe we can get to the bottom of this, but we need a lot more transparency uh, from Wuhan, from China, about, about what. Uh, um, how it all began. And any, my view is anybody who tells you for sure they know exactly how it started, uh, you know, probably is uh, trying to sell you something. But the bottom line is that this is an area of active inquiry, and we need to continue pursuing this uh, because it's important. Um, you know, on the issue that Dr. Caleb raised, there is no question that until we can come to an agreement on a basic book of facts, it's hard to uh, figure out exactly where to go on issues and, 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 and can create a lot of confusion. Look, um, when I think about clinical problems, there's clinical debate all the time. You know, do you want to use this treatment or do you want to use this treatment? And do you go down this diagnostic path or that diagnostic path? But whenever I have those debates with my colleagues, we begin with the same set of facts. Like no one starts off by saying, well, you know, MRIs don't work or CAT scans are like, no, we all agree. Like we understand what these things do. And then we disagree on like interpretation and, and analysis. Unfortunately, like with this pandemic, we've had a, 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 you know, kind of a whole bunch of people who I think have spread so much bad information that it's actually hard to have reasoned debates. Like, you know, should a 20 year old get an updated COVID vaccine? My best read of the literature is that yes, they should. A reasonable person could read the literature and say, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's true, and let's have that debate. But instead, there's all this like nonsense and bad information that's thrown out there uh, around these things uh, that make it very, very difficult, and they cause confusion. And what that does is the public often feels paralyzed and is not able to make good decisions, and that ends up harming people. So, I, I think it's really important to get back to the science and evidence and talk through those issues. Uh, and do it in a way that's both constructive and respectful, uh, so it allows us to really move the discussion. 
Well, Dr. Jai, as you were leaving the White House, the administration created the Office of Pandemic Preparedness and Response Policy, to which I think more than a few people probably said, we don't have an Office of Pandemic Preparedness. What can you tell us uh, about its mission and is it up running and on track in your opinion? Yeah, uh, I'm happy to talk about OPPR, Office of Pandemic Preparedness and Response. Um, look, um, under President Obama, there was an office created within the National Security Council that was supposed to manage pandemics. And it was a small office and it was an important office and that got going. And then under President Trump, that office actually got uh, taken away. Uh, and unfortunately we didn't have that office when COVID hit. Uh, the thing that President Biden did on the first day that he came into office was get that office going. But OPPR is a bit different. OPPR is, is something that um, Congress uh, instituted into law and said, Instead of just this one small office inside the National Security Council, we need a major presence inside the White House. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the president and I and others all agree that this is a good thing. It's a step forward. So OPPR was codified into law uh, and it got started. I think the official start date of the office was August 8th. Uh, but a ton of work went on when I was there and then after I left to get the office stood up. It has a new director, uh, a fantastic a uh, surgeon from uh, the military named Paul Friedrichs. Uh, he's the director of the Office of Pandemic Preparedness. Has They're already building out a phenomenal team. Uh, I know many of the people, obviously, from my time at the White House and before. So I am very hopeful that this office is going to make a really important difference. Speaking of things that we have to get ready for, the federal budget uh, is uh, the new fiscal year will start in October. Uh, obviously, uh, it looms large in terms of uh, Healthcare, and um, you know, we see that the CDC is is facing a substantial cuts, so over a billion dollars. Some would suggest that uh, you know, COVID's behind us, and uh, these budgets uh, can sustain some cuts. What What are your general thoughts uh, about uh, what might happen in terms of the uh, fiscal cliff uh, that we face, uh, and uh, and also the impact that the Proposed uh, reductions will have on the healthcare system. Yeah, um, I'll start off by saying uh, public health has been underfunded for a long, time. and it is true that more public health dollars flowed uh, into agencies like CDC during the pandemic. Uh, but we saw the cost of an underfunded public health system when the outbreak first began. We, as a country, were not able to respond effectively uh, because of that lack of. Dr. Ja, this is a time of year when we're celebrating uh, in our organization the uh, graduation of our postgraduate nurse practitioner residents and fellows, our postdoctoral psychology uh, residents. And we noted that when you joined us all the way back in the spring of 2020, you predicted that the pandemic would change the training of future health professionals as well as uh, the American healthcare system. Those were big predictions from your seat at Brown and nationally. Are you seeing the training of future health professionals change because of the pandemic? I am. And I think first, there has been a surge of interest, certainly in the early pandemic uh, time period in these professions. Um, I think we've seen an unprecedented number of people leaving uh, because they are burnt out and exhausted after three mm -hmm. and a half years. That obviously creates uh, more and more demand for new healthcare providers. Um, but no question about it, we have to train our healthcare providers differently. And I think we're seeing that. Uh, that we have to train them in communications more effectively than we did. It turns out that communicating with patients is one of the critical, critical things that 
healthcare providers, nurse practitioners, physicians, PAs, others need to do uh, effectively. I don't know that we paid enough attention to that. Um, one of the big uh, changes that I think comes out of this pandemic is our use of technology, telemedicine, other types of technology. We got to make sure we're training our healthcare providers to live in a world where that kind of technology is widespread, widely available. It doesn't replace the doctor. It doesn't replace the nurse. It supplements them, allows them to be even more effective. But we got to train people in those things. So I actually am very hopeful that we're going to do a better job of training our providers uh, for the future with all the changes that are going to come out of the Well, thank you, Dr. Jaw, for joining us and for your service to the country. And thank you to our audience for being here. There's more online about conversations on healthcare, including a way to sign up for email updates. Our address is chcradio.com. Thank you again. Appreciate your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure being back on with both of you. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own, and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.